Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky, and I am deeply sorry for the off-the-cuff comments I made during previous episodes of Romaniacs. I do not believe that the real divide in our society is between people who voted to remain or to leave the EU. The real divide is between the many and the few. Down with Tory Brexit, <laughs> up with Magic Brexit, my captors are treating me well. Uh, that's my tribute to Andrew Donis in his bizarro Facebook statement last week, which we'll talk about a little bit about later. Fortunately, Seamus doesn't have the key code for the Romaniac studio, so we're safe. With me are two of our emphatically anti-Brexit regulars. Naomi Smith is the interim CEO of Best for Britain, but she's still here in personal capacity. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you? All right. Um, we're going to talk about this a lot later, but what... What's the state of play from your point of view in the EU elections right now? Uh, is there any hope of a united Remain front? Um, I think it's very unlikely. It's a big shame. Um, I don't know if you saw Hope Not Hate and YouGov did a great poll that was out at the start of this week. And basically it just showed that if between them, Greens, Lib Dems and Change UK would be prepared to stand down in one region, just one of the three standing down in, in each region and dividing up between them, then it would almost double the number of MEPs that they would get elected from 9 to 16. Mm. However, I think at this stage it is highly unlikely. Talks are continuing. Um, there is you know, there, there is still work uh, being done behind the scenes to try and convince the leaders of those groups to do that. But I think we shouldn't um, expect it to happen and that if it does, it'll be a nice surprise. And we haven't talked enough about the elections that are definitely happening uh, this week, the local elections. Um, what bearing are they likely to have on Brexit? Um, I think they're likely to have a bearing on the ever-sharpening knife being wielded for Theresa May. Um, I'm told that uh, senior Conservatives have been drawn into number 10 this week to help start drafting her final speech. I don't know if that's just so that they can be prepared and have one ready or whether you know, there is any kind of planned uh, step down. Um, you know, let's all be careful what we wish for uh, at this stage. So I think um, it'll certainly help bolster those in the Conservative Party looking to get rid of uh, Theresa May. Um, but maybe, yeah. Andrea, maybe Andrea Donis can make her final speech. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's Alex Andreu, columnist, actor, cook, singer, and much, much more. Um, it's been quite a good week for Europhiles uh, that aren't in Britain. Kantar polled the entire EU and found that every country but here was over 80% pro-Remain, and even the lowest score, Italy 72%, looked quite enviable from this side of the channel. Yeah. Does this make Britain a, a cautionary tale for the rest of the EU? I think, I mean, I think Brexit has been a terrific tonic for pro-European politics, that's for sure. I, I mean, I can see that even in myself, in that where I've previously taken it as a given and, you know, was a bit meh about it. Um, it was only since Brexit that I started to more consciously think of what the EU actually offers to us. So um, I'm sure people for whom um, Frexit or Grexit or <laughs> Dexit or whatever exit Chexit. was <laughs> Chexit was a, a, a sort of nice fantasy before can now look at the reality of the constitutional mess that involves and, and maybe say no thanks, not for us. Later on, Alex will be treating us all to the winner of our Donald Tusk Romantic Fiction Prize, where we ask <laughs> listeners to channel their intense feelings about the President of the European Council. <laughs> Romantic fiction. It's smut. <laughs> <laughs> Raising the tone is this week's special guest, Rachel Shabby, writer for The Guardian and the Nation, broadcaster, expert on the Middle East conflict, author of Not the Enemy, Israel's Jews and Arab Lands, and a big fan of the People's Vote. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, well, there was really only one way up. From... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I set them up, you knock them out. Yeah. Um, there's obviously quite a lot that um, Labour would like to be doing and would like to be talking about. It was quite nice hearing uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey on the Today programme, who I can't bear when she's talking about Brexit, but talking about climate change. And it was like, oh, yes, you know, these are really good ideas and there's mm. a lot to be done. Um how much is the Brexit issue um, and obviously the tensions within the party, within members and voters, sort of getting in the way of that, sort of stalling the project at the moment? Yeah, it's interesting that you mention um, climate change. And of course, uh, the Labour Party is trying to uh, declare an emergency climate change situation today, uh, which is the call that came you know, partly from Extinction Rebellion protests that we saw over the Easter bank holiday weekend. And that was... 
you know, it, it was quite an incredible thing to have four days of, firstly, not Brexit, and secondly, something that was actually more engaging and more urgent mm. in many ways, uh, except for, you know, in terms of a parliamentary calendar, but certainly more urgent globally uh, than Brexit. So it's like this little glimmer of some of the things we could be talking about and how we could be talking about them and how we could be uh, mobilising support for them. And I think I think for, for the Labour Party, that's been the constant frustration with Brexit is that it would like to go around it, right? Because there's so many other things that it wants to be focusing on. And ultimately, you know, uh, I think there is a consensus somehow in the Labour Party that Brexit or stopping Brexit is one thing, but actually the real healing or the real benefit to the country will be stopping the causes of Brexit. So stopping that sort of rampant inequality that we've got in this country that's the worst in Europe. Um, you know, stopping the sort of wage stagnation and the the homelessness and the food bank dependency and all the things that are affecting most people in a, in a really significant way across the country, some of which fueled Brexit. I think there's a recognition of the Labour Party that it would much rather be dealing with that than with Brexit itself. But it Increasingly in the party, you're seeing a split between people who are saying, let's try and just nudge and fudge away around Brexit. And people, and this is in the, in the radical left, and people saying, also in the radical left, saying, well, that would be ideal. Um, but we left that exit on the motorway mm. several months ago. Mm. And we now actually have to go through Brexit. We have to engage with it and essentially pick a side so this reminded me of going on a bear hunt where you you can't go under you know the children's book where it goes you can't go under it you can't go around it you have to go through it can i just can i just Obstinous. say that, that for, <laughs> for european kids. migrants like me uh, uh, brexit is not a separate issue from poverty and homelessness. Sure. or and, climate change. You know, fact. or climate change. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so this is a, 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 an aspect of the labor rhetoric that I found really particularly grating, you know, this idea that, you know, ignore Brexit because then we can get on with helping the NHS and um, helping poorly people and helping homeless people. Well, what about Bulgarian homeless people? What about, you know, German mm -hmm. people who are sick? How are you helping them by piling this massive thing on top of their already <clears throat> difficult life? So just wanted to put that in brackets there. Repping for the EU27. Yeah, sorry. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about all of this, as well as the British economy's unfolding new role as a petri dish for a world after global cooperation, after this quick reminder from Naomi. Tickets for the next Romaniacs Live in London are disappearing faster than ingenious alternative arrangements for the border in Ireland. We're doing an eve of the EU elections crisis special on Tuesday, May the 21st at the Leicester Square Theatre. And our special guest is comedian, broadcaster and friend of the show, Marcus Brigstock. Dorian, Ian Dunt and I will be on the panel for the night and we're going to see if we can persuade Marcus to answer a few questions in the style of his amiable nitwit, Giles Wembley-Hogg, who may well be leading the Conservative Party by the time <laughs> we record the show. Also, it's a double special event because we're marking the launch of Dorian's new book, The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984. Copies will be on sale and Dorian signing them too. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. If you're a Patreon backer, check your inboxes for your discount code and we'll see you there and then. That's Romaniacs Live at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday 21st of May, right before Europe goes to the polls. Tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks, Naomi. Let's start with the EU elections and specifically the row over a confirmatory referendum on the Labour manifesto. After a week of rancorous to and fro, the NEC finally agreed on Tuesday to the old formulation of a referendum under some circumstances, falling short of what Tom Watson and much of the membership wanted. Uh, if you were following the reaction within the PLP, it wasn't much help. Uh, Wes Streeting spun it as a welcome commitment to a referendum. Gloria... De Piero said it was a welcome refusal to commit to a referendum, <laughs> and Bridget Phillipson called the wording mealy-mouthed and the bare minimum, saying it would demoralise activists and depress turnout. Um, now, it doesn't, because it is, in a sense, a restatement of the, uh, of the conference uh, motion, 
it doesn't change a great deal, but the timing and the optics, because this is the manifesto for the European elections, yeah. seems has made it the last straw for a lot of people, including at least one person in this room. Um, Alex, what's what's was this expected? Um, yes, I mean, yeah, it was expected. Um, the, I mean, the the issues, the issue that has plagued the Conservative Party as well, which is if you promise to leave. Um, with no downsides, and it is actually impossible to leave with no downsides, but it's also politically impossible to remain, then what you end up is in a situation where you're perpetually leaving. And that's where we've ended up. Um, but it was disappointing. It was disappointing because there, there had been such clear instructions from CLPs, from uh, over 100 MPs, from all the MEPs, from Scottish Labour, from Welsh Labour. And, and to say that the situation is a restatement, therefore there's no change, I think is, is uh, deceitful. Because actually, to restate the same position two years down the line when you've run out of road is a change of position. You know, to say we are now at the edge of the cliff and we're still going to dither is not the same thing as saying I'm going to dither when you're five miles from the cliff. We had 16,000 emails sent uh, to NEC members from Best for Britain supporters who are also uh, Labour voters and Labour supporters. They've told us that they are um, uh, trying to persuade them ahead of uh, yesterday's meeting um, of the NEC. And... Since that, that meeting, Remainers have been so angry about it, and I understand and share their frustration, no end. Um, but but they seem to be thinking, all right, well that's it. There's, there is literally no point in lobbying Labour now on this anymore. Just give up and, and focus our attentions elsewhere. But I do think that we need to remind people that it's those it's it's that support over the last year that has made a difference. I know it doesn't feel like it, but it has because Brexit is still now down to. MPs, it, it is still there. It's still for them to, to, to make yeah. that difference. And uh, this isn't about whether or not you're going to vote Labour, but it is about making sure that you do keep applying that pressure. I think even a month ago, we may not have been in a position where we would have been able to say for 100% certain that the manifesto would have included the policy commitment from last year's uh, conference mm -hmm. uh, in the September. No, a month ago, we expected to be out of the EU. Exactly, so, exactly. And, you know. and, and they did whip... For the indicative votes for a people's vote twice um, and I, I think that is all down to that constant drumbeat from its members and supporters reminding them reminding if we take our foot off the pedal of Labour now then they have free ru free run so I'm, I'm this isn't about telling people to vote for Labour but I do think we need to keep the pressure up on them that now is not the time to pull back from it. I heard someone make a very interesting point where they were suggesting we're in this weird catch-22 situation because if uh, if Parliament approves May's deal, then May doesn't need Labour in any way or a confirmatory vote. And if Parliament doesn't approve um, May's deal, then the condition under which Labour will call for a confirmatory vote will never be met. And so, <laughs> yeah, because then it wouldn't be Tory Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. So either way, you never get a confirmatory mm -hmm. vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could look at it entirely the opposite way around. Mm -hmm. You could say, actually, since no deal and uh, Tory Brexit are mm -hmm. already sort of dying options, we will eventually get to a confirmatory vote. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's right, what you're saying about um, maintaining the pressure. I, I do think uh, there has been a journey that the Labour leadership has been on. And so, and sometimes, you know, it replicates the journey that individuals, um, Labour Party members or supporters have, have also been on. Mm. Um, and, I, and I don't think that... Um, I don't think this is an ideological thing. So when we're talking about the radical left, I think there's several strands in it. And, and there, is a, there is a strand that is quite lexity... Um, in a sort God, of the L word. in a sort of old left old left way and, and old here is not a is not an age descriptor mm -hmm. right it's a it's a temperament descriptor yeah, yeah. Um, but I think this the the more significant split is really about tactics and strategy um, and it's over the idea of having a second referendum at all 
as, as to whether or not that's that's a good idea. Um, and, you know, there'll, there'll be people inside that configuration who will say, well, it might not be a good idea, but it's really the only option that we have available at this stage. Yeah. You know, we've run out of road. This is all we can do. It's going to be nasty. Of course it is. No one relishes it. But but show me the other option. Um, and, and then there'll be a strain of people who will say, no, that's not a right thing to do because we told people that, you know, that the, the referendum decision would be enacted and now telling them that it won't be enacted is going to be even worse than enacting some... The sort of Lisa Nandy school. Right, that, that... right. Which, you know, I, I I find that slightly... I think you can make the case that a second referendum is strategically or tactically a bad idea but i'm a bit i'm a bit worried about you know the main progressive party in the uk saying that it's undemocratic i don't think that's a useful narrative <laughs> yeah. for progressives to get yeah, yeah. into i think it's feeding a frame that is populist right mm -hmm. so I, I would much prefer it if pro pro progressives didn't mm -hmm. yeah. use that kind of landscape and terminology but then there's the third element um and this is all the sort of you know, Corbyn supporting left, the radical left, the third element that would say, um, well, if there is a second referendum, it's it will uh, empower the sort of the nativist far right. And the, and the second bit of that sentence, which is not often explored, is, and we do not trust progressives to have an argument in response to that. And you can understand when, why they're saying that, because when you look at things like people's vote, and you look at the ambassadors of People's Vote. We have people like Tony Blair, who only a few weeks ago was saying, you know, it's migrants have failed to integrate. Mm. You know, so we have that on one, the one side. And then we have on the other side, the kind of blue labour component that for, for decades now has been feeding an anti-migrant narrative and has been quite willing to throw them under the bus <laughs> when yeah. required. And then even on the radical left, we have these kind of... I don't know. People who are argue from the left that, you know, this is all essentially some ruse concocted by liberals and migrants to overwhelm the wishes of the working class and the working class are always in this context white. white. Yes. Yeah. Right? White so male. White male and static. English. Static. English. English. And, and English and very in, static. In, like a very in cells, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you look at that, you can understand why there's an element of the sort of the labour, um, you know, the, 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 the composite that will say... We don't trust the left to handle a second vote. Mm. But, but, but that's what an I was, argument that but, I don't and, think people's vote is really engaged with in a serious way. And I think, um, but I think what happened yesterday has helped Farage. I think I think the NEC decision has emboldened Farage. And when we look back at history, any time that well, we know what happens when the far left do things that that embolden the far right. And so I don't, you know, while I understand a lot of that analysis I don't agree with the um, uh, prescription being to continue to have this fudge position I, I know you don't either I just no, indeed uh, yeah, and yeah, you know yeah. the whole you know love socialism hate, hate Brexit, Brexit is great. Um, affiliation of MPs is very much from that perspective yeah. and I think and most of them aren't white and most I mean, of them yeah. aren't white to, to me the, the, the crux of it which is why today I've come out for the Greens actually just because in my area it makes sense um, but the crux of it is this, that all of these theories, all of these electoral strategies are based on the notion that you can kick the remain progressive side of the Labour Party a lot more before yeah. they leave you yeah. than you true. can kick. They're much softer than the leave vote for and, which and is the hard And actually blank. that's yeah. why I think we now need to show that. I think the only thing that is capable of saving the Labour Party from itself at this moment is to show them that 
actually the progressive vote and the remain vote mm. is also mobile and is also capable of saying you're not expressing my wishes. There was a populist poll out this morning on exactly this, which is quite interesting, showing that Labour is getting the worst of all worlds with yeah. their Brexit policy. Mm. 61% of Leave voters think Labour is anti-Brexit, only 7% think they're pro-Brexit and 28% of Remain voters think Labour is anti-Brexit. So in other words, Labour's policy of fence-sitting is just really pissing off both sides. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, to your point, I think that um, that is true about Remain, Labour Remain voters, and that's something that, you know, when you look at even polling that TSSA has done, which is, you know, a very Corbyn-supporting union, and, they, and you know, they did some work a few months ago, and they found exactly that. They said, look, you're, you're more likely to antagonise your Remain voters. Uh, Labour Leave voters are shifting more to Remain, number one, and number two... Uh, it's not as important to Labour leavers yeah. as it is to... And the really hard leavers have kind of left you anyway. Because to... actually you can't be making a pitch to the really hard leavers and at the same time saying that Churchill mm. was a traitor. Mm. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the sort of thing that will rile them up anyway. Because you yes, have to but... be... If, you, if you're going to court that vote, you have to court it wholeheartedly. You have to make a sort of motherhood and apple pie argument to that core vote well, because they have because they have all these other cultural values exactly it's not right. just so you about can't be leave, say, you can't be saying mm, i'm not mm, sure about mm. churchill and mm, i don't know about uh, about trident and at the same time be trying to court them with a brexit vote because you don't come off as authentic they won't believe you so but to the to the thing about um remainers registering their discontent with labor and showing that they you know, they shouldn't be taken for granted, or that which I think is what's been happening. You know, Labour said, "Well, we can we can essentially yeah. absorb a hit slightly from that flank, but not from the Leave flank." So I think I understand that sentiment, and I also understand the impulse of saying, "Well, why should I have my vote then aggregated as a pro-Brexit vote when yeah. Parliament says, yeah. well, the two But in the European context, I would I would really caution against that because you will be doing a disservice to the European Parliament, which is facing a threat from the far right. So, you know, if we split the progressive vote, the risk of, of returning, you know, Brexit and UKIP MPs to Europe and therefore having the European Parliament, which is already facing the far right in other permutations in yeah, other yeah. countries, having to deal with that number of far right MPs as well. I don't think that's an act of international socialism. I, By the way, I, I don't think Labour's approach I, is an act I of agree, but socialism that, either. But. I agree, but that only becomes relevant if we don't Brexit. If both Labour and the Conservatives are pushing for Brexit, then the MEPs we send for a maximum of a couple of months, is neither here nor there, in my view. And the only way to make Labour change their position on Brexit and stop it is to kick them. And well, this is yeah, the only I, chance well, I get to kick them. I've come round to the, to, to the same uh, position after yesterday. I understand in general election, you know, you, there's lots of other factors. You need to get Tories out is paramount. Um, this is a, a Europe-focused election with the electoral system that, relative to first-past-the-post, benefits smaller parties. There are plenty of firmly anti-Brexit parties that deserve your vote. And yeah. I do think if you, stroke I, can't back them on this occasion, then I don't know when, when you ever will. I also think there is a factor that our, our sort of favourite Labour candidates, um, people like Seb Dance, Gordon Rays, Eloise Todd, are quite near the top of the list. So I do imagine that a lot of the kind of these ardent remains that have signed this pledge to campaign for a, another referendum would likely get in anyway. It's yeah. not like their vote's completely going to collapse. Further down the list, to be honest, I would rather see greater plurality. I would rather see the smaller parties rewarded for taking a firm stand. And and as you said, Rachel, the, the you know, had the experience in 2017 of having my vote spun as an endorsement mm. of Brexit. And it's infuriating that 80% of people voted for parties that supported mm. Brexit. Including by and members of the, the Shadow Front. Bench. And, and it's just it's just driven no, me I, mad. And I just I don't I just think it would be I I think it would be crazy for Remainers. Depending on the electoral map, if you're in a constituency where basically nobody but Labour has a chance, OK, fine. But if you're in a constituency, which is uh, London is one, um, where other parties have a chance, Gavin Esler, for example, has a strong chance, or in the southwest, um, you know, Molly Scott, Cato, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't know why you wouldn't vote for a pro-Remain party. 
Because, on this occasion. Well, yeah, I, I don't buy that argument. I mean, I think when we when we get closer and closer to the election, it will become it will become um, a two party race in the loose sense that it will be about Brexit parties on one side and the Brexit party on one side and the progressives on the other. And I think that in, in a European context, by the way, I don't think I don't think the Labour position now is is particularly international socialism either because mm. they're not engaging with that reality of how do we how do we get the European Parliament to shift leftwards um, and it's, it's it's quite odd to me that um, you know the radical left that envisages radical transformative change that this country needs you know socio-economic transformation in this country um, then sees the EU as something that's quite static and you know permanently neoliberal yeah. and it's like yeah but you can change that yeah you know if if the pes the party of european socialists were a majority and in that in that parliament that doesn't happen with greens and that doesn't happen with change uk if they were in the majority then they could shift the european parliament leadership and the entire configuration would tack to the left so if you believe in that and therefore you believe in progressive values around climate change around austerity around taxing fairer taxation if you believe I, in all I, that i agree with then, all of that i simply don't see labor as a that's, particularly progressive that, party that's at the, the best counter argument that i've heard I mean, I'm still not voting Labour this time. Okay. I just can't. But I do think that that's, that's definitely the kind of strongest response I've had. Why? So, at uh, uh, Best Written, we've done tactical voting things before. I'm, I haven't yet decided whether or not we're going to do one this time. It's a conversation I'll have to have with, with colleagues. But one thing that makes it so difficult is knowing how to not do harm. Because mm -hmm. I totally buy it. You know, I'm a Liberal Democrat. I am not going to be voting Labour in these <clears> elections. <throat> but... When you look at certain regions, and yesterday I was playing around, I sent it to Alex, a DeHaunt calculator based on a 17th of April poll with those numbers, um, and it put Labour on 35% when you, in London. When you take that down to 25% and you split it across Greens and Lib Dems, you're, you're only getting one more... Brexit party MEP elected, you're not guessing. So yeah. so I guess, I understand, I do. I just think we have to be so, so, so careful. That's not me advocating how anyone should vote at all. Um, but I think as the polls solidify, uh, European polls are notoriously uh, inaccurate, especially this far out. So I think yeah. we are probably all just going to yeah, have yeah, to yeah. take a judgment call the week I think the thing too is just going to have to pay very close attention yeah, exactly, and decide how exactly. best to use your vote exactly. in your part of the country. Exactly, yeah. There's just one thing I want to mention before we, before we moved on, is that Jeremy Hunt the other day during an interview called the question of a second referendum, the central argument in British politics, which given what it was uh, a year ago, given what a kind of long shot it seemed, you know, before People's Vote launched, I do think that's quite a remarkable achievement that, 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 that so much of the conversation is gravitating towards that. Um, and that's the only time I will quote Jeremy Hunt. And it, is <laughs> and it is important to keep positive because actually the thing that can hurt remain is low turnout. And what we need to do is drive registration, drive remainers to go and vote. That's the most important thing. They can choose Labour if they, if they agree with your argument. They can choose someone else if they don't. But it will be decided on yeah. turnout. Vote, vote, vote. Now watch out. It's the future of the British economy. <laughs> Whatever happens with Brexit, it's already changing, and some are seeing it as a giant experiment in what happens to developed economies in a post-global world. Trade barriers are going up, all certainty is being destroyed, Donald Trump is using trade wars as a domestic political tool. According to Bloomberg, Britain and Europe are an experiment, I think Britain's relationship to Europe, I mean, there is an experiment in undoing globalisation. Mark Carney says, excitingly, we are the acid test of the new way of doing things. Rachel, what globalisation is like, it means different things to different people, and obviously... Um, on the left, it is often synonymous with uh, neoliberalism. But then there's also kind of the, there's a sort of an internationalism aspect to it as well. Is it possible to, are you, do you think that globalisation generally uh, has been um, pernicious? Do you think there's a way of sort of untangling it from the pernicious aspects? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that it's associated with um, capitalism on the left, because, you know, I remember covering actually the anti-capitalist protests of the late 90s and early 2000s. So that was very much um, anti-capitalist. They were called anti-capitalist protests and it was, you know, um, Global South led in the sense that they had been the initial recipients of 
essentially austerity programs that were then called structural adjustment programs. <laughs> so they were, you know, uh, Western economies um, going into global South economies and saying, well, we'll give you loans, but you have to make your markets accessible to us. You have to shrink the welfare state. You have to shrink the state. And, you know, it paralyzed economies mm. and communities in all kinds of different ways. And, and at that time, you know, the media started to call those protests anti-globalization. Yeah, at which point yeah. a bunch of people mm. said, but we're not. Like, mm. that's not what this is. <laughs> this is anti-capitalist. Like, don't, don't depoliticize this or repackage yes. it in a way that makes it easy for you to comprehend because that's not what's going on here. So I think there's always been that understanding um, and, and therefore and that anti-capitalism has had, you know, since then various iterations, but it has been in some way a rejection of, of a neoliberal economic model over which there's been a consensus um, in the West, in, you know, in Europe and in the US for, for several decades and, you know, uh, the radical left analysis of that, the, 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 the Corbyn left leadership analysis of that would be that has caused extreme economic inequality and extreme economic punishment um, in our societies, avoidably for ideological reasons. Um, and has failed, even by its own, even by terms. its own standards. Absolutely. You know, when Absolutely. you're having to bail out mm. banks, right, exactly. I mean, that's it. it yeah. You know, it's failed. And we failed to not uh, stop internationalism becoming equated with inequality. Yeah. Um, and yes. and this is all yes. about mm. the growing inequality, vo- galloping growing inequality in most uh, Western democracies now. And, and, and we just shouldn't be surprised when globalisation isn't working for people that those people say, hey, globalisation isn't working for me. You know, it shouldn't be a, a, an effing surprise. But, that's, but, if, but if we say, if we see that, if we say globalisation then that's conceding a bit of the argument yeah. that says we shouldn't yeah. be joined up, we it's shouldn't have free movement of people. Exactly. It's capitalism yeah. that's not working. Yeah, yeah. It's not the fact that we're interconnected and people migrate. And we've not made which that is, case. And we've not made yeah. that case. Yeah. We agree. <laughs> it's all over. We agree. Um, because, I mean, the right has, has lots of responses to uh, globalisation, you know, protectionism and trade wars mm-hmm. and uh, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment. What's... What's the sort of left's alternative then? What, what's the left's kind of strongest, strongest argument for a form of kind of interconnectedness that, um, that is not what we currently have? Well, I mean, if you ask me, I would say inter- international socialism, internationalist socialism. Um, you know, the whole... When you crunch down into um, Labour's 2017 manifesto um, and you're seeing iterations of that... Um, Mm. amongst uh, equivalent lefts across Europe, but also in the US, um, with the new Democrats coming up as Mm. well. When when you look at that, um, and you look at the the meat and bones of the policy, what Mm. what is going on is... um, a rewiring of the economy. It's it is a it is a transformation. It yeah. is a socio-economic change, mm-hmm. and it's about um, regrowing the economy um, and doing it in a way that is green and community-driven um, and regionalized rather than nationalized. And I think. Um, the challenge for the left in the UK and especially in this sort of Brexit environment that we're in is to find a style and a language that is not managed to do that actually joins that up to the you know culture war, for yeah. want yeah, of yeah. a better yeah. word, yeah. that we're in. Yeah. Um, and, and to find a, a language that is that it inc- includes mm. migrants and is anti-racist mm. in that iteration, as well as having that socio-economic, like joining the dots and yeah. saying this all comes together or it doesn't work at all. We have to redistribute the proceeds of growth and we've got two governments that should be helping us do it, both the UK one and our, our European one. And actually our European one has been doing it for us a lot of the time. Mm. When we look at to an investment... Extent. To, to an, an extent. extent. But, 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 you know, when, when we think about areas of the, of the UK that are amongst the most deprived areas in Northern Europe, there are EU-funded projects happening there that our UK government wasn't and wouldn't fund. Wouldn't and fund. It's, it's, and it's, it's a, you know... Because they're not marginal. <laughs> so well, who cares? Indeed, exactly. No, but, exactly. But, you know. but wealth has been so concentrated in the hands of the few uh, that until we, as a you know, centre-left, socialist-left, progressive-left, w- whatever kind of word you want to use for it, um, 
distribute that wealth both geographically and uh, you know uh, amongst people um, uh, of different income brackets um, we're not going to win and, and there is a role for an active state in that and and for an active EU in doing that and it, the EU has been doing that and when you go, when you go to I don't know whether it's because we're a net contributor but when you are anywhere else in the EU and you walk past a park a playground a building that has been funded there's a thing this is enormous yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking thing on the hoardings yeah, yeah. around it and, and <laughs> not you've got to squint and like really get magnifying glass <laughs> to see one tiny little tile in the top left hand corner I mean, to, saying this was funded to by to me the connected the connected issue which has been a failure on actually all sides um, is the, the lack of realization that European politics, global politics, but European politics, is at the moment a fairly accurate ref- reflection of the sort of average of our national politics. You know, the reason the EU has gone more neoliberal, more monetarist, is because it is an accurate, accurate reflection of its constituent members' politics which is an accurate reflection of our regional and local politics and our personal politics. And you cannot wave a magic wand and do away with one layer of administration, hoping that this will magically leave the rest and the rest will be a, a, a socialist utopia. I mean, in the case of the UK, it's, it's historically literate. The the EU has anchored the UK towards the centre, if anything, has prevented it from spinning further to the right the majority of the time. All its policies... And you could ask the reverse is true, that the UK has dragged the EU to the right. Absolutely. Um, In in the case of Greece, you know, my home country, I understand the argument a lot better because Greece wants to go slightly more to the left and the EU is not letting it. Mm. But the idea that somehow the EU is preventing the UK from becoming socialist is for the birds. Historically, that's not what has happened. You know, working workers' protection legislation, environmental legislation, consumer protections... All those things, the EU has consistently been to the left of UK government policy. But that is the argument that I think... That's just the fact. No, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just going to expand on that a little bit and say, you know, this is something that um, actually Laura Parker recently wrote. She's one of the uh, Labour MEP candidates, the momentum organiser. Number four, I think. Guardian piece. London list, isn't it? Yeah. So she she, um, joined those dots (laughs) in terms of... uh, you know, the capacity to deal with those big issues like climate change and austerity, but also take on, you know, the far right in a European context and and, and help um, our European progressive allies in that fight. But also this idea, even if that were true, it doesn't work on its own terms. Even if you thought that the EU was a construct preventing a socialist radical agenda in the UK. So if you had a Labour, a Labour, a Corbyn-led Labour Party, and it wouldn't, it would be constrained by the EU, even if that were true, which it is not, then why wouldn't you want the European Parliament to tack leftwards so that when you as the Labour Party in whatever relationship you're in with the EU, when you approach the EU, you already have, you know, ideological partners in the frame. So even on its own terms, that argument about the EU being... uh, intractably neoliberal doesn't and 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 uh, a bar to socialism doesn't make sense yeah but it's all about it's all about instant solutions because the idea that i have to change profoundly my personal politics in order to change my local politics in order to change our national politics in order to affect european politics is a lot of bloody hard work so ticking a box and saying if i tick this box everything will be okay is the much easier option so of course it's attractive well thinking globally um this this phrase is the economy stupid which dates back to the 92 Clinton campaign sort of worked as a truism of electoral politics for, for quite a long time. And I think it was certainly seemed to be from reading about the 2016 referendum campaign, that seemed to be what sort of Craig Oliver was was working on. It's just like just hit them with the economic arguments. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work uh, in the uh, Trump-Clinton election. Does this mark a kind of a long-term shift towards culture wars and identity and away from economic arguments because that if if so if that's if that's the kind of near future then people are going to going to take quite a while to work out how to, to mm. deal with that because this is something that they just believed in for decades 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, and that is that is the danger of the the you know the moment that we're in. Where the, these culture wars aren't just about values, although they really are in a big way about <laughs> values, about what you stand for. But they're yeah. also about it's not and and it's not changing the facts it's creating confusion over facts so people no longer know what to believe so that when you know michael gove says you know we've had enough of experts that you know when exactly. when you describe people the judges the judiciary as enemies of the people exactly. you are undermining when you say fuck business exactly yeah well no not so much that but these are institutions if that, you're conservative i think it that where where you where there is an element of trust and truth and if you undermine the capacity to believe that there is an objective truth, then you're in trouble um, because then nobody will believe you. And it doesn't matter how much factually you say things, nobody will believe it's true. But do you think it's Which, that they just you didn't believe the economic warnings? Because there seemed to be quite a lot of polling which suggested that, that a certain significant number of people did believe them, but, but didn't, but didn't care. care. And yeah, I think yeah. maybe that was... That was where there was a sort of break with consensus of how we've how we've kind of run campaigns for for so many years was that that people would actually go, I am willing to be poorer to leave Europe, keep immigrants out, etc. But I think a lot of people th believe how much worse could my life get, actually. A lot of right. people feel that things are so yeah. bad for them mm -hmm. that your economic warnings mean nothing because, actually, they couldn't get any worse. It's wrong, it's actually. Wrong. Yeah, but there's also they could get, get a whole lot worse. But there's worse. also plenty of comfortably off people that feel that way worse. as well. So let's not do the... No, absolutely. You know, but the point is, if, to lose. You, if you dismantle our tools for conflict resolution, then it's impossible to find compromise. Impossible. Because if your argument is X on economics and mine is Y on economics, we may be able to find compromise as long as we can refer to some facts that are objective. But if your argument is fuck facts, facts are for sissies, yeah. then we can never agree. We can never which, find which compromise. Which was the goal. Which was the yeah. goal yeah. of that kind of politics. Well, if, if, but as a, as a counter to that... Um, one of the things that happened, you know, so Ipsos just did a poll a few months ago about national attitudes to immigration. And it's been there are more people who are positive than negative about immigration. Yeah. It's been a big change. Yeah, big change. And so one of the things when they said, what is it that persuaded you most to change? The answer that more people said than not was, oh, there's more um, more awareness of the positive benefits of immigration, which is encouraging but also heartbreaking because the bit of you think so that's <laughs> why what didn't took. we make this yeah. argument Only we before. Made that yeah, case, yeah. which implies well, that people aren't resistant yeah. to arguments well if you're into objective truth there's a book coming out at the end of may <laughs> <laughs> which is all over that shit um I mean, who's that by again <laughs> just some bald some guy, guy. <laughs> bald guy is obsessed with brexit some guy <laughs> Now, a special instalment of what we like to call Romaniacs After Dark. <laughs> oh, God. Pour yourself a glass of wine, send the kids out of the room, and turn the lights down low. Oh, God, can I leave it's, now? <laughs> it's Alexandreu in his dressing gown. A couple of weeks ago, <laughs> he's not, not in his dressing, dressing gown. gown. I wouldn't have lasted this. This is the magic of radio. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, we announced the Romaniacs Donald Tusk Romantic Fiction Prize as a way for listeners to channel their appreciation of the European Council's rugged yet sensitive president, especially Oof. a photo of him as a student. <laughs> we were looking this is for... actually worse than your views on Labour, <laughs> can I just say? We were looking for imagination and quality pro style. The winner gets a personalised iHeart Tusk t-shirt and mug, plus Alex reading out their work on the show. It aroused a lot of interest. Oh. Alex, who is the lucky winner? Uh, the winner is Phil Dore. We got a surprising number of rubbish entries, <laughs> and they were surprisingly <laughs> rubbish. Um, this was them. the least rubbish one, just. Julia Hartley Brewer crept down the hallway towards Donald Tusk's office. She wasn't sure what had caused her to take the Eurostar to Brussels. Possibly it had been the photo of him as a young man at that process. She knew she despised the man, but something about that photo made her melt like a liberal snowflake at a Jordan Peterson lecture. <laughs> His office door was ajar, and she got a glimpse of him. True, he was much older now, but he had aged well. <laughs> like the fine English sparkling wine she had sipped at the St. Pancras <laughs> Weatherspoons earlier. He looked up. Miss Hartley Brewer, he smiled. What brings you here? 
I heard about your solidarity, she stammered. Isn't that communist talk? I do hope you won't try to seize control of my means of production. Not in the least, he smiled. I believe in universal rights and freedoms. That's a shame, she whispered. I'd heard something about from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. You have needs, he replied oh, coyly. No. Maybe they can be met with a long extension. <laughs> have you ever thought about an ever closer union? <laughs> Is it over? <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> never coming on again. <laughs> <laughs> this was, you don't know how this unlucky you are oh, that, okay. the, that the stars aligned in such a way. I'm so blessed. Hashtag. <laughs> Pray for Shabby. Our very tolerant and regretful guest this week is writer for The Guardian and broadcaster Rachel Shabby. Um, Rachel, thanks for coming in. The concern, I suppose, about averting Brexit one way or another that some people have voiced, you alluded to this earlier, is that it sort of gives the far right the kind of stab in the back myth that the far right so dearly loves. But do you think that Farage's whole sort of political project is grievance and betrayal and that that this sort of the movement around him would find some form one way or another? That it couldn't be sort of... You can't just sort of put it back in the bottle. There's no version of Brexit which would just kind of drain that poison. Yeah, I think to a certain extent that is true. You you can't you can't put Brexit back in the bottle, right? It's out there, and now there are only horrible solutions. So the question is, which is the least horrible and the least damaging? And that's where that's where the disagreement is, isn't it? Um, for um, the Labour left, certainly, of you know, do we do we face down the far right? Is Brexit and, by extension, the European elections are they all a carrier for the culture war that we're in? Is it like the British iteration of a global culture war mm. um, between um, you know the progressive left and the far right, or is there a way to extract that um, fight? from Brexit itself. And I think that's that's been, you know, certainly amongst the Corbyn left, that's been the, the disagreement. But, but what's interesting to me is that you've seen more and more of the Corbyn supporting left go into the camp that says, no, actually, <laughs> Brexit, is, Brexit is what we need to fight if we mm -hmm. want to fight the far right. Yep. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are the same thing. And you see the whole, you know, the love, love socialism, hate Brexit mm -hmm. configuration of MPs who are all... All of whom, you know, they're Corbyn-supporting MPs. They want a Corbyn-led government. But also, you know, when you see it reflected in the grassroots as well. Um, yeah, Momentum, where one of the uh, bodies that wrote into the NEC um, saying we want you to support unequivocally a sort of confirmatory referendum, weren't they? Well, I think... I'm not sure. I think there are divisions within momentum oh, as God. well. But, cer <laughs> but certainly, you know, reading between the lines of their own inter internal polling of where their members are at, it would seem that their members mostly yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. think Brexit would be incredibly damaging but also support some kind of uh, second vote on whatever deal. There were lots of people missing from the NEC yesterday, as I understand it. There, I think there were about 10 of them who weren't there. Um, I don't know if you know what the breakdown was of that. I mean, presumably some had sort of personal reasons for not being able to go. I just wondered whether there was any kind of, you know, people that just didn't want to have to make the decision and sat it out. I'm sure there's lots of people who didn't have to want to. Yeah. Have to. None of us want to have to make huge, any of the these NEC, decisions. But I think I think that the problem. I don't really know. Okay. Um, but I think the problem with this issue um, and the danger of this issue is that you know it ha there's this tendency to inside Labour to um, cast it as a factional issue, and that is to its detriment. Um, other issues also fall into this camp where you really don't want people to be factional about it. And I'm saying this about the left and the right mm. of the party. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, once once Tom Watson became, um, you know, the envoy for that message of, listen, we need mm. a second 
We need a confirmatory vote on any deal. We just need that at this stage in the game. Once he became the envoy for that, I think mm. it was really unfortunate that he did because it then meant... It became that... a Trojan horse for getting Corbyn. Exactly, yeah. and that's that's the suspicion all along. That's been the suspicion all along. So I, d- I do think that was... Um, you know, that didn't help. But I also, you know, n- neither... I'm not... Neither side has been able to get above that factionalism. Well, you wrote about going to the Put It to the People march and the contrast between the left bloc, um, who I think their their kind of mini rally was was where we set off Mm. on on Park Lane. So we we heard some of those speeches. Comparing them with the, what you call the centrist status quo. I mean, the the people's vote, and I suppose Remain generally, is, you know, dominated um, certainly on the kind of upper level by these sort of what you might call centrist figures. But do you think that Labour's ambiguity, despite the work of people like Clive Lewis, made that inevitable, that if you're taking out of the fight instantly the kind of top flight of, you know, taking out the Labour leadership and the shadow cabinet, how, how, how else could it have played out? Surely it was bound to take a more sort of centrist turn if if, if Labour was cautious. You know what, I do think there's an element of that, of you can't have it both ways. You can't both criticise the people's vote for being status quo, continuity, the worst advocates for a second vote, and at the same time not engage. The way to make people's vote nothing like the people's vote is to have the Labour left leading it. Mm. Mm. So I don't, I don't think you can have it both ways in that argument. But, but I also think that the Remain, you know, that continuity Remain element has really done so little to engage with the reality of Brexit and what made people vote for it and also the part that they had to play in it. Yeah. So when you look at some of the leading lights of uh, the people's vote, um, you know, they are people who um, were part of that neoliberal consensus, whether it was from the left or the right, that, that has created these awful wealth gaps in the UK, that has created communities that feel decimated and neglected and disconnected, um, that has caused a situation where migrants have been allowed to be scapegoated for economic failures, which they are not responsible for. You know, there was that a point ignored when a million they... people marching against Iraq. Right. So there's something there's something there about the um, the people's vote people that is very um, disengaged from the actual nuts and bolts of what it would take to bring people with them on that journey. And that, you know, if you voted Remain, that is very frustrating to watch. And you wrote another um, piece for The Guardian, um, good newspaper, um, <laughs> about the sort of how the pushback um, from, from Labour MPs and sort of high-profile Corbyn supporters like Erin Jones and Ash Sarkar prompted a very swift Labour U-turn on the Conservative immigration bill. There was this huge sort of uproar and they, and they changed position very quickly. Why do you think pressure worked so quickly on that occasion and not on sort of broader issues such as freedom of movement or the referendum or whatever? What, what was it about that that suddenly made it so... That made it so effective. Mm, that's a really good question. I think because it was so unequivocal and it was across the board. So at the names you just mentioned, for instance, wouldn't mm. necessarily be um, in behind, the same camp. In the same yeah. camp right. over um, a confirmatory vote. But I do, I do think that's a really interesting question. So I remember talking to Momentum, um, someone from Momentum, just after the. Um, the, the second leadership election. So Jeremy Corbyn, when he sort of had his leadership challenged mm-hmm. and retained it. Um, and, you know, I was saying, look, as a, as a Corbyn-supporting grassroots movement, I get it. Like, you're going to defend the leadership when the leadership is imperiled. You know, you're going to um, defend it in terms of that's what the party members want. And that is your role. Once his leadership is secured, what do you then become? Are you a group that is um, always loyal to the leadership no matter what? Or who, what? What are you loyal to? Are you loyal to mm. radical politics? So are you loyal to the you know, principles of freedom of movement, climate change, um, airport the expansion? The itself, what, you know. What, what is it that you will challenge the left on? And I, and I see this as it's not even to do with it being the Corbyn left. It's just how politics works. Mm. You know, um, parties, when they get powerful, become centralised, they're detached from their grassroots. And so how are you going to keep them 
to account, especially mm. when you're dealing with a left-wing party that has proclaimed, and a left-wing leadership that's proclaimed that it is in a relationship with its grassroots, that mm. it, it is grassroots-led, that it believes in participatory democracy. If you have that kind not of on, relationship, not on Brexit. what will you use it for? <laughs> on other issues, on other issues, it's mm. grassroots-led, mm. and, and that's that was my final disappointment. I'm afraid it's so. It, it's just so patently clear which way the grassroots of the party want to go on the issue of a confirmatory vote yeah. mm-hmm. that it's just mm-hmm. nonsensical to and resist it and still maintain that uh, you're democratizing the party and you're going to be led on policy issues from the grassroots. So and and its voters, it's not even just its grassroots, but, yeah. but I mean, Labour is polling incredibly badly in Scotland at the moment. Mm. And I think the point that isn't made firmly enough from within Labour to Jeremy Corbyn is this whole issue of Scotland. If we Brexit the chances of independence in Scotland become much, 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 much more likely. Yeah. And I don't think that Labour can win a majority government on seats in England and Wales alone. And if it wasn't for Scotland, it wouldn't have won in 2005, for instance. So the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister is, is you know, is... is unfathomable, yeah. I think, if they can't rely on votes in Scotland. But I, I do think that that's the bit where, you know, the, the Corbyn brand, which has been about, you know, he's, he's the, the he's honesty, authentic. the credibility, yeah, yeah, yeah. the authenticity. He's been damaged in a long time. I think by that this. This, this has damaged him, yes. his brand or risks damaging his brand because it's like either you believe in party democracy, in which case you really, you know, Mm. Overwhelmingly, yeah, yeah. the mm. party is telling you to it's, go in a particular it, direction. It's doing badly in North London as well, not just north of England. Um, uh, and I, I, I hear that um, Diane's seat and Jeremy's seat are both not, you know, nowhere near where they were, which is in part why Emily Thornbury has parked her tank slightly more on Corbyn's lawn on the issue of Brexit mm. in the last few months as well, because their canvas returns are not good. Interesting you, times. How, how confident do you feel about if there was a general election, which of course seems to be Labour's priority? Uh, about getting the re- a result that you would like? What, so, what sort of fighting state are they in? Yeah, I have two concerns chiefly about that. One is that um, I don't know to what extent um, this whole issue around Brexit has demoralised Labour's ground game. It needs that ground game. It needs all those activists to go out, you know, not just on the doorstep in communities, in offices and, and talk, talk the Labour talk, right? That's that's a massive tool that it has. It's a massive asset, yeah. half a million members. Uh, and then the second thing that worries me is if you are the Labour Party and you have this radical um, you know, uh, socioeconomic transformation plan, you need a majority for that. You don't just need to scrape through. Mm. To, have, to have a mandate for some pretty big change and to be able to hold on to um, the mandate for that change, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you need a pretty clear majority. Um, and that worries me as well, the, the capacity to actually bring in a resounding win that says absolutely clear-cut, we can implement this policy over the next four years. And not have every piece of legislation picked over. over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. No, like, you're right. It, he, he needs a sort of a kind of landslide, really. Mm-hmm. And you've you've also written very well about um, anti-Semitism, which has obviously been a kind of long-rolling problem for Labour. And to sort of get away from Corbyn as, as an individual, what do you think is the, the, the sort of the root of anti-Semitism on the left specifically? Because, I mean, there's obviously Israel-Palestine, you know, and the tensions around that plays a huge part. But there also seems to be this 200-year-old obsession with the with the Rothschilds and this conspiracist view of capitalism as a sort of, um, you know, as as a sort of conspiracy. Um, and do you think that because I think for many for many years I think many people on the left have associated anti-Semitism with the with the right and is very good at doing that. You know, fighting them in the streets and opposing them, Parliament, etc. Do you feel that it's going to take quite a while? quite apart from the personal politics of this, for the for sort of the left to understand what left-wing anti-Semitism is and, and how to sort of recognise and deal with it? It probably will take a while, but on the other hand, it has been there for a while. You know, it didn't start with the Corbyn leadership. Mm. It was always there on the fringe. Um, and, and I do think that this is another example of 
um, the problem you have when you see everything through a factional lens. Mm. So um, because because it's been, it is, I think there is an element of the left that sees this as an as a factional stick with which to beat Corbyn, and then there's a fairly reflexive, defensive response to that, yeah. which is completely unhelpful if you're trying to. Tuck, tackle prejudice yeah, and it's, it's understandable but um, and, and also that the, the, the membership has been conditioned over several years to react in a defensive way mm. um, so you know the fact that the leadership was um, you know ridiculed for so long um, you know these ridiculous stories checks by etc didn't bow enough um, at the cenotaph yeah, 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 all, the, yeah. all that stuff and, and to a certain extent there are elements of the leadership that has you know, not exactly tried to do anything different, you know, so that has been quite useful to them as well. But it's re- resulted in a dynamic where it was a very defensive and unexamined reaction to anti-Semitism. But I do think that the, the, the two um, delivery mechanisms that you speak of are, are the main drivers of it on the left. There is the... Um, critique of economic power structures um, that is valid and it's a socialist left critique Um, the terminology can become um, infected Mm -hmm. right with some pretty bad anti-semitic tropes Um, and so you know there's a a need and I think that that that's been around for a while as well you know people talk about it being around uh, during the Occupy movement Mm. Um, so there's been that strain of it and the other strain of it is um, you know the the Israel-Palestine conflict where completely valid and legitimate criticisms of Israel uh, slide into language that is um, very hostile to Jewish people so those are the two delivery mechanisms and I think the reason it's particularly resilient in the left is because the left doesn't self-identify as racist um, and therefore has a... (laughs) Yeah, the reaction is, we're the good guys. We're the good guys. Instead of going, well, racism is like prejudice is an animating Mm. force that exists in society and everybody is at some point susceptible, right? Um, That's how prejudice works. It's always in society at large. Um, So that's what's made... The left have, have a bit of a blind spot over this issue, um, which has made it very difficult um, to raise and to engage with. Well, actually, sort of to tie things together, I suppose it, it, it you know reminds me of what you're saying about how important it would be for this this sort of Corbyn project to have a majority, because I think what you're suggesting, I think, is right, um, is that the more embattled uh, Corbyn corporate supporters become, almost sort of the worse their judgment and that I would worry about sort of minority government where it was and they'd also had a lot of press against them as well we'd be in that constant siege mentality and perhaps would not make uh, the same decisions that it would make if it had it was in it felt in a more comfortable position mm. so it'd be, it would be become it would be less defensive right if it had a majority you would hope. Um, I don't know to what... <laughs> Maybe I'm being more optimistic than you. I don't know to what extent, because when we saw... So the 2017 general election, in which, you know, Labour did so much better than anyone mm. expected, and the left was proved right that if you tack left on a socio-economic programme, you will have popular support for it. Um, and that was the point at which you would expect the Labour Party to expand, or the Labour mm. left to expand, right? Bring in different factions yeah. who kind of went... Yeah, you were right. That's the time to bring them in. Yeah. Um, but but I'm not sure that's happened. I wonder if the opposite has happened. Like there has actually been more of a retreat, um, which I which I don't think has been that helpful. This is what happens every time I try optimism. Thrown <laughs> back in my but face. It, no, no, you're right. It's you're an right. Inter- it's an interesting parallel. I think also with Brexit that both the Brexit side and Labour left they didn't quite know when they had won mm-hmm. and it was time to be gracious to to <laughs> the to the vanquished and find a compromise they kept pushing as if they were still losing well the end of the show is here and that means something else the brexit time capsule rachel shabby what are you placing in our underground cache of stuff we'll need if we leave the eu i'm deleting when <laughs> if. Okay. your audience is going to think this is so precious <laughs> so i'm going to put a put a warning on it. I'm going to miss, you know, I'm, I'm someone with a very hyphenated identity and I'm going to miss that capacity to be hyphenated. Now, I know leavers say it doesn't mean we're leaving the Euro- Europe, we're still part of Europe, but I, I think that we will lose that 
hyphenation, yeah. being mm. British yeah. and European, and, and I will miss the capacity for hyphenation. Thanks. And we've got another German clip to close the show. This is Rebecca Dell. Sorry. I don't think her name has a question mark in it. <laughs> We've got another German clip to close the show. This is Rebecca Dell, who is an ex-Erasmus student who moved back to Berlin right after the Brexit vote. This is really short, so listen closely. Halt die Fresse. Die EU ist besser. That basically means, shut up, the EU is better. Which is uh, very German. Send us your European language clips at info at We'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. Rachel Shabby, thanks for coming in. What are you working on at the moment? I do quite a lot about racism and immigration, so those have got a few pieces I'm working on around those issues. Yeah, unfortunately, too much material at the moment. Mm, quite a lot. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. A heartfelt Evharistopoli from me to Yossi Emolaya, Andrew Cummings, Marshall Matthews, Graham Johnson, Colm Prunty, John Sparaga, Dean Browning, Julian Mattox, and Cheng, Enian Craggs. Hello to Bar Lopman, David Walter, Brian Power, Emma Smith, Justin Brame, Lucy Kimball, Helen Taylor Wilkinson, Juliet Finney, Adrian Macias, and Nicholas Sanders. And thanks for me to Owen Hunt, Martin Ford Downs, Tim Hughes, Sue Harvey, Janine Nickel, Simon Malinitz, QC, Amanda Little, Mark Ravenet, Roger, and Rebecca. See you next time. Remain X was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreo. The producer is me, Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by Sophie Black. Remain X is a Podmasters production. Thank you.